0: on this episode of Backstories. I am
1: not talking about a book or an author. They're all goddesses. It's a very female-centered story. Who is the big bird?
0: I am obsessed with all things macabre. The movie, (laughs) that book, they're not safe for life. I only learned this in researching the backstory was actually a high school teacher.
1: Hi, welcome to Backstories. I'm Amy and I'm with Johnson County Public Library in Indiana and I'm here with Keely. Hi. Hi, we're at her branch today in Trafalgar, Indiana, which is just a gorgeous library. It has surrounded by natural prairie. It's super cool. So if you're down here, definitely stop by. If you're new to the podcast, What we do is we talk kind of about the history of basically whatever we wanna talk about, any sort of creative work. The library literally has access to everything. So everything's on the table. It's not just about books. Today, I am not talking about a book or an author. I am talking about Legend of Zelda. If you aren't familiar with it, it is a video game. Do check with your local library or with us if you're here in Indiana, because lots of us circulate video games. Super cool. You can just check them out and give them a try. If you've never played Zelda before, where have you been? No, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Because the first Zelda game was released in 1986 in Japan. And in 1987 it was released in the United States. These games have sold over 100 million copies and there are 19 official Zelda games in the series. If you've never played one, you've probably, whether you've known it or not, seen something about it. The main characters, the symbols from the game, maybe you know the storyline or you've heard the names of the characters. The game centers on the main character in various incarnations. His name is Link. He's usually young, either a child or a teenager. He looks like an elf. He is trying to save Princess Zelda. A lot of people think that the main character's name is Zelda, but no, he's Link. The Princesses Zelda. A lot of times the storyline is a slightly different from game to game. Usually it centers around Link trying to find pieces of the Triforce, which is a sacred relic. It was left behind by the goddesses that created the land where all of the stories take place. It's called Hyrule. They're all goddesses? Well, the goddesses created Hyrule. Oh. And Princess Zelda is the reincarnation of one of them. I like that. Yes. It is a very female-centered story, even though you don't think of that often in video games. There have even been versions where Link is a female character, just one of its many facets. The Triforce is sort of like a shield, and it's, each piece represents courage, wisdom, and power. And so Link usually has a piece of courage. Zelda usually has wisdom and power is usually what you're trying to get back from the bad guys. The setting Hyrule is sort of based on a medieval Western European inspired fantasy. Link kind of looks like an elf has pointy ears and a lot of the geography, the buildings and things are sort of medieval European looking, that sort of fantasy look to it. The world of Hyrule again was created by three golden goddesses, Din, Ferrari and Nehru. Again, they left the Triforce behind. If you get all of the various pieces of the Triforce together, then it grants wishes. <laughs> That's why everybody wants it, but it also gives you different powers in game. The main creator of the game is Shigeru Miyamoto. He partnered with Takashi Tezuka and the music is by Koji Kondo. These people, if you know anything about Nintendo, the company that makes Zelda, they're like gods. <laughs> <laughs> they also created a game, a little a little tiny game you may have heard of called Mario. Uh, it rings a bell Maybe we know Mario nah, I don't um, know. Yes, so they've been involved in creating some of this, the most iconic video games and characters in the business Miyamoto, he originally wanted to make toys Really? Yes, and so he brought his portfolio to Nintendo to actually like make toys for them But they put him on the video game design team to design the characters Uh, Kondo is not even a musician. He was in school for something else, but he, like a lot of kids in Japan, took music lessons. Uh And he actually chose as his instrument, the electric organ, (laughs) (laughs) which if you think back to the sixties and seventies was kind of a big deal. Like that Hammond organ sound, like the Beatles used it, a lot of bands used it. And so he was like rocking out and jazzing out on his electric organ. And he saw a sign on, like, the job board at his college where Nintendo was asking for musicians. And he's like, oh, I love video games. So he applied for it. And it turned out he had a real skill for composing music and then formatting it so it used the very smallest amount of memory. Because at that time, video games were, of course you know, on cartridges. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah, it was very rudimentary, and they didn't want to waste space that could be used for gameplay and graphics on music and sound. Okay. And so he ended up just being really good at that as well. Also, Takashi Tezuka, he got a graphic arts degree, and so that's when he applied to Nintendo. He thought he would be, like, designing, doing art design and package design, but it turned out he was really good at also gameplay they all ended up working together so it was like this perfect storm of people that had all these weird talents that had nothing to do with gameplay or computers that ended up just really bringing a lot to the table to create all of these incredible games zelda was inspired the game of of legend of zelda not the character zelda was inspired a lot by miyamoto exploring nature when he was a young boy
0: that makes so much sense because those are such beautiful games
1: yes yes and they they have a lot to do with just exploration he liked to play in hillsides and forests and caves when you're in zelda and you're in the dungeons and the caves looking for things a lot of that comes from his cave exploration that he loved to do he grew up you know in rural japan he found a cave entrance in the middle of the woods and when he went in um he saw a lake and that was like a big deal for him. That show that imagery shows up a lot in all the Zelda games. And one of my favorite quotes is that when he created it, he wanted to create a miniature garden that you could carry in your pocket.
0: Aww. Which I just,
1: yeah, right? Like that is just so sweet. When you think of video games, I think a lot of people think about more games like Call of Duty and battleground games and things and like violence
0: that. and yes and yeah.
1: and even though there is a lot of fighting in Zelda when they originally created the very earliest game during the play tests the things that people loved the most was exploring the dungeons it was fine to, for them to have some combat in between that. And solving puzzles and things like that, but the exploration was really the fun part is to see, like, what if I turn here? What am I gonna see? So that really affected the design of the game as it went forward. Miyamoto also said that Link's name comes from the fact that originally the Triforce was going to be electronic. It wasn't gonna be such a fantasy game, it was more gonna be based in technology. And he was the Link that Link's that was going to electronically link these pieces together. Later on in the game, Link turned out to kind of time travel and he does all kinds of things. And so he's actually the link between all of the worlds, the past and the future, as well as linking the pieces of the Triforce together. So that's where his name comes from. When you think of it, when you hear the name Link, you think it's not a very heroic name, right? Because it's it's
0: like so small and tiny, like boop.
1: It's, yeah, there's no drama to the name Link. Yeah. And to put that on a character that looks like a boy elf also isn't yeah. very heroic. Then when you hear that, the history of it, it's like, oh, that's massive. He's yes. the Link. Yes. He's the Link. His look and another character in the game that is kind of contested, it's a fairy named Navi who kind of navigates him.
0: <laughs> Wait, is that the... Um, I've been watching my husband play yes. the newest... Uh, Zelda game Mm -hmm. on his Switch. Is that the big bird thing?
1: No. Navi she doesn't appear in all the games but for a while she was in games and she would give Link instructions and basically be the navigator. That's based strongly in Peter Pan and Tinkerbell. Like his look oh. of being in the green outfit with the little hat okay, and having this little fairy that like guides him around. And she actually is just looks kind of just like a ball of light with wings.
0: Oh, okay. Like when you
1: see Tinkerbell from a distance, that was a very, that affected the visuals a lot.
0: Okay. I thought that
1: was really funny too. Okay. Who is the big bird? That is a, uh, you can ride on those. It's one of the mounts in the game because that, that thing squawks
0: mm-hmm. and I hate it because <laughs> I will be like like doing something around the house or reading and I'll just hear ah
1: no he ah, needs and, to switch oh, to a horse <laughs> I hate it so much do you hear that Freddie yes switch to a horse also Zelda the princess is in fact named after Zelda Fitzgerald oh <gasps> <laughs> Again with the with the whole girl power aspect of the uh, game. <laughs> my heart,
0: my nerdy heart.
1: I know. Um, Miyamoto thought the name sounded pleasant and significant. <sighs> So when he heard the name Zelda, he knew he wanted to name a character after, not realizing that that name would be carried on for, you know, almost 35 years in 19 different games. And Princess Zelda is just famous. She's iconic. Right. As is Zelda Fitzgerald. The Master Sword, which is Link's weapon, is, of course, based on Excalibur. Miyamoto had read the Mabagnagion in the which is the Welsh althurian legend and so that affects the game a lot. Sure. Yes, Link is just a common boy. There's nothing special about him who actually um in game ends up with this sword and this quest. So he's not prepared for it at all. That's also very intentional um, because when you play the game, they wanted you to experience it like you've never played this game before and here you are thrust into this world and you get to discover it along with Link. The Triforce symbol, this is crazy the more I read about this the crazier it got the Triforce (laughs) symbol is three triangles stacked into a triangle with sort of an open space in the middle that is also a triangle but (laughs) that's the symbol of the Hojo clan which historically in Japan was kind of in governmental control in the 12 and 1300s oh. but that symbol obviously was floating around in the in the kind of zeitgeist in Japan and became the the symbol of the triforce and that's so famous people get that tattooed on them it's like a it's a big deal that triangle it was kind of interesting because the Hojo were one of the clans that fostered Zen Buddhism and they also helped oppose the Mongol invasion so like I said that's being the Triforce. Whereas here in America, we're just like, oh, cool triangles. In Japan, it has a lot deeper meaning when it came out. Sure. The Zelda games also were influenced by Indiana Jones (gasps) (laughs) because of the adventure and finding things and traveling around. Miyamoto said that he wanted to bring that sense of adventure to a video game. And people playing computer role playing games back then were bragging about how strong their swordsmen were and they were, you know, calling each other at night to exchange puzzle information. He said, when I noticed that I thought it was an interesting milieu. So with the world of sword and sorcery as my theme, I decided to make an adventure game based on treasure hunting. And so that was the origin of Legend of Zelda. Takashi Tezuka also has a really cool quote about gaming. He says he's never consciously separated casual users and hardcore gamers. For the past 20 years, I have always been trying to make games so that anyone, as many people as possible, can enjoy them. I cannot help to say that I love my job of making games from the bottom of my heart. That's so
0: wholesome.
1: I know. Uh, There are a lot of interviews with these three together. Nintendo interviews them often, of course, whenever a new game comes out or there's an anniversary, 10th anniversary, 25th, 35th is coming up. And they're just, they're all very charming. They also, I read an interview about when the game was coming out, they had been using as their title music, Ravel's Bolero. And that was going to be it. They had synced up all of the opening stuff to it. It was ready to go, but then they found out it was still under copyright. Copyright in Japan is different than copyright in other areas. And it had actually, uh, the copyright on that song lasted so long, it was still in effect, so they couldn't use it. The game was almost ready to go. And so Miyamoto sent this message, you know, to Kondo saying, I need title music. And He's like, well, we have title music. No, we can't use that. You need to compose something else. And the game was almost ready to go, so he had to pull. And he this is, in his words, he had to pull an all nighter. So he took part of a theme he had composed for another part of the game, reworked it so that a it matched the beats in bolero, so that it would so that it would match what they've already animated and coded. Right. And then also had to make it sound like an intro. Miyamoto said the essence of that type of tune is concentrated in the opening song and it suggests courage, that there's a melancholy air in the beginning and it sort of sounded like music in a spaghetti Western film, like that. (laughs) (laughs) And so Miyamoto said, so it's a good thing Kondo-san spent all night composing it. And Kondo said, for sure. And they all were laughing. This interview was just so cute when they were talking about it. Another aspect of creating video games early on for the home market, the Japanese game came with this really cool booklet. The designer said that when you walked into an arcade with your quarters, you looked at the cabinet design And that's what was your first clue as to what the game was going to be like. And so that's why they wanted to use the book. Because they didn't have enough artwork space on just the package or the cartridge to give people a sense of the feeling of the game. So they made this really cool book. When it was released in the U.S., they didn't have the book. That just wasn't part of what Nintendo wanted to include. So they made all these maps. And the maps had hints on them. And some of you might remember this. If you were playing video games on Nintendo in the 80s, they had maps and the maps had hints on them, but they sealed them because they said it was no fun if you know the solutions to the puzzles ahead of time. So they sealed them and it said you should only use the map and strategic tips as a last resort. And then Miyamoto said, but everyone breaks the seal. Everyone in the room at the Nintendo during this little interview, they all cracked up because everybody breaks the seal. <laughs> I also wanted to talk about one of the series of Zelda games in particular. It came out in 1998 and it was called The Ocarina of Time.
0: Ooh.
1: An ocarina is a musical instrument, it's like the little round thing with, plays like a flute and it has eight finger holes. I don't know. If that's an ocarina. I don't know why they chose that. Probably it is a medieval instrument and when they were looking up cool instruments, that came up, so they used the ocarina. Changed a lot of the of the gameplay and it influenced pretty much every video game from there on out. It introduced boss battles. Ooh. which is now like key thing in most in most video games especially right. role playing games it was a 3d environment and so they consciously thought of camera angles oh. and where the camera would be in the perspective of each place as you went through the game and it also used the camera for targeting before you didn't have any of that sort of targeting where you, well now the way we do it is we click on what we're targeting and the target shows up and then we know it's there. That was started in Ocarina of Time. It was a big thing. A lot of these guys, especially Miyamoto, he used to draw his own comics and he studied design. And again, you know, there had, a lot of them had studied graphic arts. And so they always were thinking about what's the right angle when you're drawing a comic. And so that really influenced where they put the camera in the game. And they even used the camera as a character. In Mario games, sometimes you'll see the camera flying next to him. It's a little helicopter. (laughs) And things like Navi, her perspective as she was flying around, that was because they were concerned about the logic of the camera angle when you're playing the game. So I don't think about that ever when I play a game, but that's really interesting. Also in Ocarina of Time, Link grows up. And this was a big controversy because Miyamoto was like, no, he has to be a boy. He doesn't want him to ever be out of a teenager. He doesn't want to, and this is a quote, he doesn't want to make him just another cool hero. He wants him to be playful and childish. But while they were making Ocarina of Time, one of the designer's wives confronted him and said, why doesn't Nintendo have any handsome characters? (laughs) It's like the adult characters were Mario. Plumbers. I mean, they didn't have any, you know, they didn't have any handsome adult characters. So right. they're like, you know, maybe we should, you know, make Link good looking. So that <laughs> inf- that <laughs> affected the design. And they also wanted to make him an adult But Miyamoto was so concerned that he would be too cool that they actually put boy Link to sleep and then he woke up in an adult body, but he still had that childish mind. So that's kind of how they dealt with having an adult character, but still that innocence of being Link. So I thought that was really crazy because it was such a it was such a big deal about he really wanted young Link. And they're like, no, we really need to have a character. We need him to grow up because <laughs> our players are growing up. Okay, so, you know, yeah. yeah, we needed to have that. Um, another thing, too, that influenced them um, and this is again I'll quote interview. It said some years back a television show called Twin Peaks was popular. When I saw that, the most interesting thing wasn't the ins and outs of the story, but what kinds of characters appeared. Tezuka-san said that the same thing in our session when we were talking about Legend of Zelda, he told the staff that he wanted to have a bunch of suspicious characters just appear like they do in Twin Peaks. <laughs> like
0: the log lady <laughs> or whoever. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that was a really big deal to them. And a lot of people, when they played Ocarina of Time, um, one of the things that stuck with them was how even the tiny, minor characters had backstories. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was influenced by Twin Peaks. <laughs> wow. They pulled from Every everything. Thing. One more thing is we were joking about having a horse in the game. That again was influenced by the fact that when these guys were growing up, I mean, they were growing up in the fifties and sixties and cowboy movies were a big deal. Yeah. He was telling a story in this interview with Nintendo about how the drinking factor At their elementary school, they all had little aluminum cups that you filled Uh and that the kids constantly would flip those over and bang them against the ground to sound like the horse hooves. And so Miyamoto's telling this story about his school. And again, the interviewer, all the people there cracked up and were like, we all did that. (laughs) Like, everybody did that with these cups at the school (laughs) drinking fountain. It was this whole thing all over Japan. It said, that's how much we all loved horses when we were kids. That rhythm is ingrained in us. Yeah. And so he wanted to make it so you could ride a horse in Ocarina of Time. It was really important to him to have this horse also when you're riding the horse you can explore more of the world faster you can really? go faster than when you run so that was another big deal and so now there's mounts Mount riding things is an important part of the game you get to tame them and ride them
0: okay um yes but so you can choose a horse and not that obnoxious yes, you can, squawking bird well
1: it, the, you'll still run into them but hopefully you won't you won't you don't have to bring it with you it's like a jar jar binks For
0: me (laughs) It's just the noise of it It's like
1: Headphones Headphones Fred
0: It's (laughs) horrific Oh I hate it so much
1: And then the last thing That I found When I was researching It just popped up And I have to mention it There is a very acclaimed Irish novelist His name is John Boyne Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wrote Boy in the Striped Pajamas. Yes. That's probably his most famous uh, thing my that he's famous heart out for. Of my chest. Right? So he writes, you know, very serious literary fiction. His newest book, it has been released in the UK and Ireland. It isn't out in the US yet. I believe it comes out next week, sometime in August. I don't know when this podcast will be released, but it is coming out in the US. A reader noticed something in the book and posted to Reddit that during the course of the story and The Traveler at the Gates of Wisdom is a historical novel and part of it does take place in sort of medieval times. When the narrator's talking about dyeing fabric red, for dressmaking The ingredient list Is how you dye clothes red In Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild <gasps> no <laughs> So he posted it to Reddit And he kind of posited You know is this an easter egg Like does John Boyne play Zelda Then somebody also posted it to Twitter Tagged Boyne And said did you just like google And take the first hit Dying red medieval <laughs> Like, how did you get this? Because Breath of the Wild has very complicated recipes in it. And a lot of people do like Google those and share those when they discover them. And so if you do put in Dying Clothes Red, just out of the popularity rankings, all the Zelda recipes come up first. It's like, didn't you go to at least page three of Google? Right. But so Boyne tweeted back, LOL, that's actually kind of hilarious. I'm totally willing to own that. Something tells me I'll be telling this anecdote on stage for many years to come. (laughs) So it was an accident. He really did do a Google search. And now he's in. Yes. And so now in his very serious book, capital V, capital S, very serious book, there is the recipe that comes from Legend of Zelda for dyeing clothes in medieval times. I don't know if it'll be fixed in other editions. I think it sounds like he's just going to leave it. But yes.
0: (laughs) That's beautiful, and that's why you ask a librarian.
1: Exactly. This is my (laughs) library pitch. Authors, writers, students. Or uh, not. I don't know. Yeah. Don't use the first page of Google, and if you aren't sure, give us a call. We're here. We aren't going to charge you. We'll look up whatever you want give you the right source. (laughs) That's the best. (laughs) Yay, libraries. Yay, John Boyne. (laughs) Yes. So if you would like to read any John Boyne or if you'd like to play Legend of Zelda, we do have those things here at the library. So come in and check them out. I know the last podcast, if you listen to it, that I did with Alyssa, we spoiled it for each other and talked a whole bunch to each other beforehand about what we were going to talk about. It was purely accidentally on purpose. I do not know what Keely's going to talk about. So (laughs) it will be a surprise. So surprise me, girl. What is it? I am obsessed with
0: all things macabre. When I was growing up, I was raised on a very even mixture of Disney and horror. Yay! (laughs) Yes, so I think that is a pretty good explanation of who I am today. (laughs) So make of that what you will. So I am going to talk about um, some of the inspiration and explanation behind *Salem's Lot* by oh Stephen God. King. Have you read and/or seen it? I
1: have read it, but it was okay. a long time ago. Okay. And I actually did see the original miniseries. Okay. I believe it was in the '80s. That's maybe before that? Um, 80s, yes. But with the horrifying vampire child that floats up the against window the window. Scene? Okay, yes.
0: Oh, I just got I yep. got goosebumps <laughs> right now. Yes. That was
1: horrifying. I was way too young for that. Everybody's way too young for that. That
0: movie, that book, they're not safe for life. I guess maybe spoilers, but like, I mean, the book was published. In 75, 74, so if you haven't read
1: it by now, I don't know if you deserve a spoiler alert. I'm sure I must have read that in high school. I mean, I graduated in 85. So yeah, that would have been about the time I would have been A, terrified of a show I probably was too young to watch and B, reading a book I was too young to watch. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I couldn't tell you how old I was when I first saw Salem's Lot. I know that I was familiar with it already um, by the time I was a sophomore in high school. And then I read it. Oh, gosh. I think I was almost 30. But still. So, like, a handful of years ago. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'll start with, like, the inspiration. So Stephen King, and I only learned this in researching the backstory, was actually a high school teacher for a (gasps) while. Really? Which automatically, I was filled with jealousy that I was (laughs) not a student of his because... Oh, my gosh. How amazing would that have been? Um, He taught a sci-fi and fantasy class.
1: Well, yeah.
0: And, yeah. (laughs) So one night, he posed the question, kind of thinking out loud at dinner, what would happen if Dracula appeared in modern-day New York City? His wife, Tabitha, kind of shot the conversation down pretty quickly when she responded with, well, he'd probably get run over by a yellow cab and (laughs) be killed instantly.
1: Dracula's not ready. (laughs) Right, right, right.
0: So, you know, that kind of, like, shut it down really quickly. They laughed it off. But then he kept turning the question over in his mind. And he was like, yeah, you know, she's right. But what about in more rural New England?
1: What about me? Maybe he wouldn't get hit by a car in my neighborhood. (laughs)
0: Right. (laughs) You know, so he decided to jot it out. First, it was uh, more of a short story. And initially, it was called The Second Coming. But that title was a little too cheesy for him. And then it was Jerusalem's Lot. Mm-hmm. And then the publisher thought that sounded maybe too religious. Like it was, it is the second coming. Yes. And then got shortened to Salem's Lot. Oh, okay. But the town in question is called Jerusalem's
1: Lot. Oh, I see, I always, I guess in my head, I thought of like the Salem witchcraft trials. It just made it spookier, the word Salem. Uh,
0: right, yes. But it is Jerusalem's I Lot. See. And then like the townsfolk have kind of shortened it over time and it's Salem's Lot. It
1: was published in 70, I think it's
0: 74. Oh my goodness. Um,
1: right. So there really wasn't a lot. Like now, dra- like Dracula or any vampire in modern times is just normal. Yeah. Like, that's how they're all, that's how they all are now. But, I mean, we have Twilight and Buffy and... Yes. I mean, even in the 70s, there was, like, Blackula. Yes. I mean, but that was, this was still before that. His idea was before any of that.
0: And Salem's Lot is actually credited with what we have now as the modern iteration of Dracula. Stephen King actually has a very low opinion of Twilight.
1: Well, (laughs) that's fine.
0: Yes, he's allowed. Yes. Um, And actually to this day, he says that Salem's Lot is one of his favorite novels of his.
1: Oh, that's so cool. Which is wonderful.
0: I feel justified having been so terrified of the novel as a grown woman. Yes. (laughs) But yeah, so it was extra interesting to me. So Salem's Lot, it was his second novel after Carrie.
1: Also, high school related,
0: yes, also high school related. It set up a trope of mm-hmm. his that would become really common. um, you know, a writer being the main character, yes, set in New England, and then like small town with big, dark secrets,
1: yes,
0: which Carrie kind of did also. That was kind of I don't know. That kind of highlighted it for me because, like I'm familiar with Stephen King, of course. And you know I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he that's really does focus it. on writers and everything is set in Maine and, you know. Yes. Misery. Yeah. Mm. Oh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Woof. <laughs> yeah.
0: I didn't think the scene in the bed with the club could get worse, but then I read the book.
1: Oh, and it... it, it. Because in the book, it's pages and pages and pages and pages. I mean, it just goes on much longer. Yeah, starts bad gets worse. Yes. So in researching this, Salem's
0: Lot actually goes a whole level deeper. I found in an interview where Stephen King was talking about how even more than vampires, Salem's Lot is about how if you don't stop evil when you see it, evil will consume you.
1: Oh my gosh. Is the vampire trope. I mean, it literally changes you. It turns you into one. Because he wrote this
0: kind of while the um, Irvin committee was sitting and during Watergate.
1: Oh, my gosh. And
0: it was kind of funny to read his sentiments now in 2020. Yes. (laughs) But he was like, I just felt like the world was ending. I felt like I couldn't read about more evil and more corruption.
1: Oh my gosh. Nixon as a vampire is like, there's got to be one of those out there.
0: Actually, yeah, here's um, here's the quote. I wrote Salem's Lot during the period when the Irvin Committee was sitting. That was also the period when we first learned of the Ellsberg break-in the White House tapes, the connection between Gordon Liddy and the CIA, and that kind of goes on for a while. Every novel is to some extent an inadvertent psychological portrait of the novelist. And I think that the unspeakable obscenity in Salem's Lot has to do with my own disillusionment and consequent fear for the future in a way it is more closely related to invasion of the body snatchers than it is to dracula oh
1: interesting
0: the fear behind salem's lot seems to be that the government has
1: invaded everybody oh my gosh i didn't think of it as political because i was too busy being afraid
0: same same absolute same It was just so fascinating to me to read that comparison because you think about it and you're like, wow, you know, this powerful old man moves into the town and everybody's just like, wow, you know, kind of captivated Mm -hmm. and, you know, and then slowly but surely everybody goes dark.
1: Yes, they start just. isn't the first, now I'm trying to remember, but the kids are the first ones to go, Right. Like, uh, I, I are they think the first so. ones that like? Admittedly, it's like, been a minute. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just thought that that was so. That is so interesting. Like the there's a political background. And yes. The thought again. This is something that now vampires in modern times. You know they've amassed these fortunes over time. That's a big thing in these stories. That they do have power. I mean, I think of Buffy, the principal and the mayor, that they, because they've been around for so long with their immortality, they have been able to sort of weasel their way into these positions of power. Just the comparing that to a politician, that's really interesting. Yeah. You know, and that so that has often. become such a modern- thing in vampire lore i don't know what you call it yeah <laughs> but yeah because vampires i mean they're always rich because they've just been saving money this whole time right they're always they are always powerful and secretive i mean you never read the story about the down on his luck vampire right exactly <laughs> yeah you never hear need about one that. of those <laughs> <laughs> it's like man i've been given our immortality i'm still screwing it up right yeah <laughs>
0: how do I how do I move out of this apartment
1: I know it's like oh I'm never gonna get out of my mom's basement
0: (laughs) (laughs) but yeah I just oh I remember I will never get that the window scene out of my head no
1: that was horrible to
0: this like my entire life I've never been able to sleep in front of an open window
1: no I will never go to close the curtains and you walk up and see your reflection there is always a minute (laughs)
0: yeah, <laughs> oh, something second. moved.
1: Something moved out there.
0: Yeah, you can just hear that, Danny.
1: Oh, let me ew, in. Ooh, ooh, no, no. And I just, when
0: I was finally reading the book, I remember Freddie was working on his car and he wanted to test the brakes. Like he had been repairing his brakes. There had been, I think it was like the Perseid had uh, meteor shower. Oh yeah, yeah, was happening. And I had mentioned wanting to, you know, to to watch that at some point. Mm-hmm. So I've been reading it. And he comes to grab me, and he's like, Hey, I want to test my brakes. I'm all done. Will you take a ride with me? He's like, yeah, sure. So I hop in the car, and we're driving out in the country so he can test his brakes. And when I say out in the country, <laughs> I mean farmland, yep. like no street lights, all corn. <laughs> and so then out of nowhere, he just kind of coasts to the side of the road, turns off the car lights, and stops and immediately i'm like what did you do why what why what's happening why
1: are we stuck here and he
0: goes well don't you want to watch the meteor shower and i was like (laughs) not here
1: can you lock the doors please
0: because there's no light
1: yeah i mean it's just so dark and you're just sitting in the car
0: and he's like what is wrong with you and i was like i'm reading salem's lot (laughs) it's vampires like i am a grown woman Oh,
1: I know. And I was ready to die. I was so scared. Oh, I hear you. It's like (laughs) every time, like every once in a while, we'll rent a cabin for our vacation just to get away. And it's so quiet and so dark. And there's no, you know, neighbors that, I mean, I panic at every little movement until I get used to it. Because it's just, it is, it's so scary. And there's all this weird stuff that's just in the back of our minds all the time. Yes.
0: Just super quick trivia. Yes. So the miniseries, like when they found out it was not, so initially George Romero was going to be the director. Oh. When it was going to be a theatrical release. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then when they moved it to a TV series, George Romero stepped out.
1: Oh, because he didn't want to be on TV. Yes. He's a film director.
0: Well, he wasn't going to be able to get blood and gore Oh, exactly.
1: He couldn't do like rated R or whatever they had.
0: So the director that wound up taking it was actually thrilled by that because he was going to have to rely more on the tension and the suspense. Oh, that's interesting that it couldn't be gross. And I think that's what really made the impact in Mm -hmm. the long run because blood and gore doesn't really get me. No. But an undead vampire child tapping at a window I am time.
1: I am not good with the jump scare. That is for sure. <laughs> that is not for me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, that is a crash course in the history of Salem's Lawn.
1: That is so cool. I think Stephen King is so interesting for a lot of reasons. Yes. I think a lot of his books, he is influenced a lot by like what's going on in current events and pop culture. I mean, he just seems to be that kind of person who's always plugged in, Mm -hmm. you know, he's always on Twitter. He's always, you know, sort of like, he just seems to always know what's going on. And so I think he's really able to plug into that, even when he's writing a book about a haunted car. Yeah. Or anything else like that. When You know, he just, he seems to know what we're all scared of at that time. So I don't know. It's interesting. I, I think he talks a little bit about that kind of influences and things when he talks about on writing his book mm-hmm. that he wrote about his process. So, which I haven't read in ages, but I seem to remember him talking about how no matter what, it's like you said, it's his psychology comes out in his writing too so that's interesting he is an interesting character yes the man
0: is a gift
1: (laughs) that keeps on giving yes i know we were talking about too like how he has writers as characters and it's interesting because i mean that does include journalists fiction writers but he does bring the journalist in to a lot of things and i was thinking about that in the outsider
0: i haven't read that one yet
1: yeah because we just did that in my book group that's another good one if you guys want to read it it also talks got the same kind of thing it's about a shapeshifter who takes different people's identities oh Uh, yeah so it's kind of not a vampire particularly but still that element of somebody isn't who they seem (laughs) spooky it is spooky So I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Backstories, talking about Legend of Zelda and Stephen King's Salem's Lot, both which had their origins in the 70s and 80s. So that was kind of fun, too, going back in time, well, to my back in time, before Keeley was born. (laughs) I, I was made in the 80s. If you have any suggestions on what to cover in future episodes, or if you have any comments about this one, please feel free to email us at backstories at jcplin.org. Thank you for listening. Backstories is a production of Indiana's Johnson County Public Library.